Webflow is a visual programming tool used by designers, developers, and other technical users. Webflow is a leader in the low-code or no-code category of software tools that has become prominent in the last few years. Webflow has been a long time in the making. In a previous show with Webflow CEO Vlad Magdalen, he told the story of being heads down on Webflow, steadily working through the engineering problems that stood between him and his vision of a visual programming environment. In the early days, it was unclear who would even want to use Webflow. A critic of Webflow might have said that Webflow was too high-level for developers, but too technical for designers. But in fact, Webflow caters to a large subset of both developers and designers who want the kind of low-code experience that Webflow provides. The product has also defined a new category of knowledge worker, the visual programmer. Bryant Chow is a co-founder of Webflow, and he was the CTO in the early days. He joins the show to discuss the engineering problems that the company has had to work through and his perspective on how Webflow fits into the software market going forward. We have partnered with SafeGraph for the SafeGraph Data Hackathon Challenge. We're giving away $4,000 in cash prizes, as well as SE Daily and SafeGraph Swag. SafeGraph is a geospatial data company which curates a data set of more than 6 million points of interest, and SafeGraph provides a high volume of location data. You can use it to build apps and data science projects with that data. SafeGraph is a company that I'm watching closely. We've done many shows with SafeGraph on the platform and the philosophy behind SafeGraph. If you've been looking for a creative opportunity to explore large data sets with the potential to win $4,000 in cash prizes and practice your data science skills, this is a great opportunity. The hackathon is hosted on FindCollabs, and to enter, you can go to findcollabs.com and sign up. If you're planning your own hackathon, you can check out Find Collabs hackathons. Whether you're running an internal hackathon for your company, or you're running an open hackathon so that users can try out your product, Find Collabs hackathons are a tool for people to build projects and collaborate with each other. And you can create your own hackathon by going to findcollabs.com. Today's show is brought to you by Heroku which has been my most frequently used cloud provider since I started as a software engineer. Heroku allows me to build and deploy my apps quickly, without friction. Heroku's focus has always been on the developer experience, and working with data on the platform brings that same great experience. Heroku knows that you need fast access to data and insights so you can bring the most compelling and relevant apps to market. Heroku's fully managed Postgres, Redis, and Kafka data services help you get started faster and be more productive, whether you're working with Postgres or Apache Kafka or Redis. And that means you can focus on building data-driven apps, not data infrastructure. Visit softwareengineeringdaily.com slash Heroku data to learn about Heroku's managed data services. We build our own site, softwaredaily.com, on Heroku, and as we scale, we will eventually need access to data services. I'm looking forward to taking advantage of Heroku's managed data services because I'm confident that they will be as easy to use as Heroku's core deployment and application management systems. Visit softwareengineeringdaily.com slash herokudata to find out more. And thanks to Heroku for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. 
Bryant Chow, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you so much. Webflow took roughly seven years to build to where it is today, something like that. And I love the Webflow story because it's a story of long-term thinking, persistence. What was the darkest moment in the journey to building Webflow? So there's definitely a lot of different instances in our journey that had the highs and lows, but I'd say the darkest would probably be late summer 2013. We just walked on stage at Demo Day at Y Combinator. And it was about like for the next week or so, Vlad, myself and Sergi, we, we circled our office probably 15 times with like moments of like existential thoughts because we went into YC like with this crazy high, but then soon, you know, after demo day, we were faced with the reality of raising money. And let's just say we weren't a very hot company coming out of Y Combinator. And, you know, there were a variety of reasons. I think at that point, there was just such a widespread love for dev tools like Heroku was just bought for a hundred million. You know, there were things like parse. I don't know if you remember that, you know, that back end. So there were like all these things like AWS was getting massive. So there were all these things that were focused on the developer, right? And what we kind of felt when we were trying to raise money was that, wow, there's actually not a lot of interest in this technical designer, not so much a hardcore coder like persona that Webflow was perfect for. So maybe it was our pitch. Maybe it was the way we we're talking about it. Maybe it was the way we weren't talking about the future, but it was getting to a point where we were really struggling to raise money. I think we only raised 300,000. It was iffy. Like we didn't know if that would be enough to, to carry forward the company. So these long walks around the office were, you know, kind of like, Hey, should we maybe heed some of the <laughs> advice and say that we should go build like a Wix competitor? Should we, you know, abandon like completely and go back and get our, get our jobs? So those were some pretty dark days because there was just so much uncertainty. Did you seriously entertain those thoughts? Did you, you personally, did you seriously entertain them or, or was it just fleeting yeah. things? And let's just say like I opened more recruiter emails wow. at okay. that point of my Webflow career than any other point. And it wasn't because I doubted what we were doing. It was just because I wanted to know like what the safety net was for me personally, because I wanted to like really dig in. But if I were to really dig in and things didn't work out, I was just kind of curious, like, all right, if this doesn't work out, can, can Facebook hire me or something like that? <laughs> if I remember the conversation with Vlad, the tech had not fully caught up to what you were trying to do. Like, I think the browser was not fast enough. V8 wasn't good enough. The JavaScript frameworks weren't advanced enough. Everything was an uphill battle. And in some ways, you benefited from the strong trends in developer tooling that allowed you to actually build something higher level. 
Yeah. So like, you know, the history of front end engineering, right? Like, I think like the biggest aha moment for me was Firebug, if you remember. And that was like this, it was before DevTools. It was like part of Firefox, right? And then like you're, you're like essentially live editing CSS and HTML in the browser. And then after a while, you know, other browsers started to catch up, you know, like Chrome launched and it became really big. So I don't think Webflow would have been possible unless there was, you know, this this growth of Chrome and, and WebKit. And like the fact that browser was capable of handling an application like Webflow, I mean, yeah, Webflow wouldn't have been a product in 2010 or 20, 2009. Do you remember what the most acute bottlenecks in the stack were at that point when you're tinkering with Webflow 2013, 2014, you're trying to get the performance that you want out of it and you just can't get the performance. Do you remember specifically where the bottlenecks were? I don't remember the bottlenecks, but I do remember Vlad experimenting with Knockout JS. And Knockout JS was actually really fast at doing a lot of different data model syncing. And it actually gave us the ability to create what's called the CSS playground, which actually got us into YC, where it's like a version, a very like simple version of Webflow where you're dragging these controls on, the, on this right panel and you can modify CSS elements live. So I think like that was the biggest breakthrough. And I think like some of the bigger performance like drawbacks actually came about when we were migrating to React. React, you know, is commonly thought of as like the super performant framework, but you know, there's actually a lot of complexity with React. And I remember a lot of our engineers really struggling with, you know, the size of our objects in the designer. And then we're also using immutable. So we're trying to figure out like how to use immutable correctly. And then essentially immutable, right, is like this awesome concept where you're having these, these copies of your objects. But when these objects are massive, let's say it's like the entire style sheet of a website and you're trying to do real time diffs of these objects in real time so that you could apply those changes to your React components, like that became really, really costly. So we had to actually performance tune our designer from my recollection a lot more than our original Knockout JS application. Tell me more about that, like making the front end components, dealing with React, dealing with the migration from whatever you'd built before to that more modernized infrastructure were you were you moving to graphql at the same time so graphql came later you know i think the biggest architectural changes that we were making were around the time you know react was getting popular and graphql was just released so there was just a lot of learnings like the react developers didn't know best practices like we knew generally like what were the right ways of approaching it, right? We were using Redux at the time. And then, you know, I think the hardest part was just figuring out like exactly how to architect the thing in a way that fitted our app. Like we, for example, in the product, in the Webflow product today, we have this thing called the data manager. And it's essentially this React app that essentially controls your entire CMS. So. You know, you can have thousands of items in here. Each item could have, you know, up to 60 custom fields. And, 
you know, we needed this React app to be really, really responsive. But we also had these UX requirements to do real-time form validation. So we were having like a lot of performance issues trying to do this real-time form validation and architecting the app so that you know we're diffing these immutable objects against each other so that you can get the UX that you want. So we spent a lot of time simply because there weren't a lot of conventions and we had to like make them up on the spot. And then also because we're like had these deadlines, we really wanted to ship our CMS because the company was losing money and we really needed to launch new products. We kind of unfortunately got pretty hasty about architecting the application and it's come up later to bite us in the sense that we've had to since like really reinvest in architecture and rewriting parts of the app to be more performant. To give the listeners a little bit of context for the engineering of Webflow, what I think is really hard about it is if you think about the dynamism of an application like Photoshop and, you know, Photoshop is a purely, as far as I know, or for, or for most users is a purely client side application. You don't have to go through the browser. I don't, bare maybe, metal. Yeah. Bare <laughs> metal. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a browser version of it now, but you're making these operations directly, not over a network. And when you insert a network into all of these small operations you have to do, like resizing a rectangle or inserting a piece of you know code into the editor. Every time you have to make a network call, and or you have to do you know eager rendering, you know because you want to give the user really a feeling that there's a seamless editing experience. Could you just at a high level describe end to end what happens if I'm looking at my Webflow interface, let's say I'm building just a blog, I'm building my blog in Webflow and I make some small change to the UI. What is the chain of events by which that piece of data gets re-rendered on my client side and propagates to the back end or does it propagate to the back end and then, then get re-rendered? Just walk me through kind of the data flow. So when we first set out to build the designer and the whole front end back end relationship, we originally thought that we were going to use a very like atomic level sync. So like every single time, let's say you dragged a slider, right? Like the moment you unclicked your mouse and that slider was locked into that position, we thought we were going to do a real-time sync to save that particular state. But we very quickly realized that that was going to add a good amount of complexity to our application. And then also at the time, it wasn't necessarily a big differentiator for our product to have that level of like real-time collaboration that you know you now see in Figma. You now, like Sketch is working on, on that. So we deliberately focused on what we thought was going to be the most important aspects of the product. And it's just simply to have like V1 Webflow where you're manipulating HTML and CSS and JavaScript visually. We never really factored in some, some things like real-time syncing and collaboration. So at the time, we opted for a really basic approach, which was let's have a thick client that can maintain its own state. And at a particular interval of non-activity or at regular sort of time periods, I think it was like five seconds of inactivity. And then if you were live designing, like we allowed the Delta to be 30 seconds, you know, 
five or 30 seconds, I forget exactly was most common, the rich client would actually send the entire state of, of that page or that style that you were working on. And it was a huge JSON blob straight up to the client to be persisted. And we originally thought it was like, oh man, this is like, okay, that could be really slow. Or, you know, this could be like several megabytes of payload. But we were just like, well, we can optimize this later. We can cut up, you know, this into, you know, we can only sync this DOM object or we could only sync this CSS class if we felt like we needed to to optimize it. Or just send the diff, right? Or just send the diff, exactly. Just send the JSON diff and then like our backend can apply it. So actually to this day, we still have large aspects of our product that are sending the whole copy. And this is a big JSON blob. Yeah, it could be the 300K, it could be 600K. The entire page. So it would be either a JSON representation of the entire page or a JSON representation of your style sheet. So, you know, we actually found that it was actually super fast. So we actually found that you know, modern computers and network connections can send those XHR requests, you know, super easily. We found that we never ran into the limit of six concurrent XHR requests in the client. So all these things that we thought were bottlenecks didn't actually turn out to be bottlenecks. And that's actually like something that probably your listeners could find interesting, which is like in, in my technical career, I've always like opted to find like the most practical solution for like the business context. So, you know, let's like rewind back to my days at at Vungle where, so Vungle is a mobile video ad network and I built, you know, the first version of our ad server, first version of our iOS SDK, first version of our Android SDK and our dashboard that was built in Bootstrap. So, you know, at the time it was literally just me and we're going out and we're trying to raise money and we're just trying to like get some traction, right? Cause like literally there's nothing. So, you know, I literally just slapped everything together and it was, it was meant to be a prototype really just to show investors like, Hey, we can build the ad server. Hey, we can build the dashboard. And like, that's how we raise money. And then actually like, that's also how we generated the first 10 million of revenue at the company as well. <laughs> so it's performing enough. Right, because it was just like making sure that the right pillars that needed to be architected well were architected well and the things that were kind of more nice to have. I think, you know, looking back at, you know, my time at Webflow and at Vungo, it was just like just picking the right things to focus a lot on and making sure that, you know, the product works, right? So going back to the whole syncing question, of syncing these large JSON payloads, just like, well, I think this is just going to work, you know, let's just build it and see what happens. And then lo and behold, you know, there's actually some customers that have 10,000 DOM objects on one page and that architecture still has held up. Mongo has still held up. You know, we have Mongo documents that are probably a little bit too big than they should be. But at the same time, you know, Mongo is actually really good at paginating that data, swapping these pages in and out. So, you know, we kind of, you know, built, you know, large aspects of our product on the shoulders of other very, very impressive tech products like Redis, Mongo, also these incredible JavaScript frameworks like React and and Knockout back in the day. And you haven't needed to even do anything fancy with the networking like protocol buffers? No. We deliberately kept it simple. I mean, we could have saved some size because you get got like free compression maybe with protocol buffers, but then we had to deal with the schema of protocol buffers. But then, so like, 
you know, we were very sort of aware that, you know, this data at the time is not necessarily going to be ingested by multiple different languages or frameworks. So like JSON is the primary data protocol for all of Webflow today. So sure, it's not as efficient. Sure, you know, it could be compressed more, but, you know, it, when your entire stack is JavaScript, it makes everything a lot easier. Right. Do you feel like the schema is still subject to lots of changes or do you can you envision a time where you'd really have your heart set on a schema and maybe go to something SQL or schema? My thought is, I mean, yeah, Postgres supports JSON schemas, of course, but my hypothesis is that because the web websites, web pages and in the future web apps are going to be so mutable, we're going to have to adopt a protocol and a schema and a data interchange format that can support like just the myriad number of use cases that Webflow users and visual developers, as we call them, will have. So, you know, that's that's our existing assumption, but we always try to pick the, the best tool for the job. It almost sounds like, and this is the sense I got talking to Vlad, there's no one weird trick to Webflow. It's just you guys were just beating your heads against the wall for seven years and gradually building something better and better and better and better. I would say and for the first three years, yeah, right. It was like from 2013, 2014, 2015, it was a small team. Vlad and I were still coding. We really just focused on the tech and the product because we knew that we wanted to get the product to a place where it was formidable it was something that developers could respect. And that's what we've seen is that like the level of detail and thought and philosophical approach that we've taken to the product has amazed not just designers, but has impressed developers as well. Now developers are using it to build their websites instead of hand rolling it in Markdown and you know whatever you know your static site generator is because it's that that much more powerful. Sure, you're still going to have developers that want to have control over, you know, their deployment, you know, cycles or whatever. They'll want to use things like Gatsby or Netlify because they feel like they want to get really really close to the technology. But, you know, there's also hundreds of thousands of web professionals out there or millions of web professionals out there that just really care about the ease of use and the presentation and the and the UX and the flexibility and the animations. And, you know, those are those are the users that we spent a really long time trying to build a product the right way to to be able to attract. Over the last few months, I've started hearing about Retool. Every business needs internal tools, but if we're being honest, I don't know of many engineers who really enjoy building internal tools. It can be hard to get engineering resources to build back-office applications, and it's definitely hard to get engineers excited about maintaining those back-office applications. Companies like DoorDash and Brex and Amazon use Retool to build custom internal tools faster. The idea is that internal tools mostly look the same. They're made out of tables and dropdowns and buttons and text inputs. Retool gives you a drag-and-drop interface so engineers can build these internal UIs in hours, not days. And they can spend more time building features that customers will see. 
Retool connects to any database and API. For example, if you want to pull in data from Postgres, you just write a SQL query. You drag a table onto the canvas. If you want to try out Retool, you can go to retool.com slash sedaily. That's R-E-T-O-O-L dot com slash sedaily. And you can even host Retool on-premise if you want to keep it ultra-secure. I've heard a lot of good things about Retool from engineers who I respect. So check it out at retool.com slash sedaily. Let's talk about the user base a little bit more because you are now what head of growth marketing, right? You're like a CMO. You went from CTO to CMO. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting journey. But it, well, anyway, maybe we can get to the journey later on. But just the your job is to understand who the user base is. And this is something that's pretty curious because, first of all, you started Webflow at a time where there was not like, I don't think this market really existed. You had designers, you had developers, you had like WordPress specialists, but the terminology that I, Vlad used, the visual programmer terminology that I think is still fairly nascent, that role didn't really exist. No, it really doesn't. And even today, matter. it's very, very nascent. So can you explain who is your user? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> So this is a great question and actually one that's pretty nuanced and actually one that we've only very recently come up with a good answer for. And this is like the first time we're probably talking about it publicly. And some people in the company probably don't even know how we're breaking down our customer personas and the the roles that they fill in Webflow. So the listeners here have a pretty good... Software Duty Daily exclusive. Yeah, that's right. All right. <laughs> All right. So let's break it down. So in the very, very beginning... We actually had an advisor. His name is Eric Bond, and he's a close friend of ours, and he's a fantastic friend and, and a brilliant mind, and he's one of our first investors. He came in and did a workshop with the three founders, and he was like, all right, you guys built a V1 of the product. You guys have users. You guys have some traction. It's going to be really important for you guys to come up with your target persona. And so we sat down at a conference table, just looked just like this, and we spent three hours talking about like who our target persona was. And this is like late 2013, early 2014. And essentially we discussed this persona and we gave them they gave this persona a name and that persona's name was Brad. And Brad is a freelance web developer. He knows how to design. He builds websites for clients. He makes 35 to $45,000 a year. He lives in Des Moines, Iowa. And like we've like he literally wrote all of this down and then he went to Kinkos. Does Kinko's even exist, by the way? I don't even know. I think it still exists. Uh, Is it FedEx Kinko's or something like that? I think you're right. Yeah. Okay. I think, yeah. Went to Kinko's and he printed out an 11 by 14 poster, framed it, and put it in our tiny office. And he was like, I want you guys to look at this every single day. <laughs> and I want you guys to ask the question, what are you guys doing for Brad today? So that was our persona for probably the next three I years. I know Brad, by the way. Like, I know this person you're describing. <laughs> Definitely met him. Hopefully and not he's only a does he live in Des Moines, he lives in, in Serbia. He lives in Thailand. He's a digital nomad. But he also is a married parent of three beautiful young kids. Amazing. Amazing. I hope he, Webflow caught his attention and he's a happy... Uh... There are many flavors of Brad. And he existed back then and he exists 
at a multiple of the population today. So I'm, I'm glad you, you figured out that prototype. So continue. So Brad was super influential. And this is actually an exercise that I run with several startups that I have invested in or advise, which is like, you know, most people have built the product and they really understand the ins and out of their product. But I think for true technical founders to really excel in this day and age, what they also really need to understand is who they're building it for and why. So there's so many different frameworks out there that I could get into, such as like jobs to be done and other types of research techniques to be able to determine who you're persona is. Anyways, I digress. But so around, you know, 2017, we we started to think and we started to look at our user base. And this was mostly due to the fact that our incredible support team brought this to our attention that, you know, there's there started to be like non-brads reaching out and all these other types of personas that we were not building the, the product for. And because we were so laser focused on this brad persona, we essentially didn't even listen to those people's feedback. And now, fast forward to 2019, well, last year, we started to do a really deep segmentation survey. And we looked at all of our users, we looked up their titles, we cross-referenced them on LinkedIn, we looked up the size of the companies. And what actually comprises Webflow's user base today is actually that Brad is actually a minority user. So Brad probably represents 37% of our user base today. And the rest is filled up by small business owners, founders, startup founders. They could be non-technical, they could be technical, large companies. So, you know, companies like Getaround, TrueCar, IDEO, and then the personas within those companies are like in-house marketers, in-house designers. So now essentially we've broken down our core profiles, as we're calling them now, into five different profiles. We've got this Brad, who's a freelance web designer, and he's building websites or you know serve digital services for the small business owner. And on this other side of this spectrum, we've got you know these journey of a founder that aspires to be a large company. And those are, we're making a distinction from this founder, from the small business owner, because this founder actually has higher expectations for their website and what it can do for them. Whereas a small business owner, they actually just care about having a web presence, right? When they fill out their Google Maps location, they want to be able to type in on the website field something that's not a Facebook page so that they look you know, somewhat legit. But these founders they actually have a lot of expectations for what their website will do. And those expectations are, it's going to be their primary marketing channel, first and foremost, because they're not a brick and mortar business. And then they expect their website to generate leads for them as well. That means that the kind of customizability of their website, the level of professionalism of their website, the speed and responsiveness of the website, these are things that these founders really, really care about. And guess what? These large companies really care about them too. So now we've like got five. We wish there were less, but you know, we built Webflow as like a general technology product and like we feel like it's valuable for so many different people. So even though it's probably a lot for people to remember internally. We actually think it's really important that we really, really identify who the most important personas are in our product. Do you know the percentage breakdowns of those personas? 
Yeah, so it's like probably 45% founders and like these these people that we call high expectation customers and they have this expectation that, you know, their website is going to do something more than just a presence for them. These are a lot of former WordPress users, people that have graduated out of a Squarespace website where they're just like, okay, like now my business is getting serious. I need more content. I need more customizability. I need to like add e-commerce to it. That's a really, really big thing. And that's when they find Webflow. That's when they hear about Webflow and that's how they get into our into our funnel. That 45%, is this the kind of person that six or seven years ago was building their MVP by setting up a type form and wiring together the type form with like Zapier or something. Or they're still probably doing that today, right? So like, you know, it would be someone that's somewhat technical. It would be someone that like understands like what a website can do for them versus like, let's say for example, a florist. Like we really care about delivering a product for a florist, but, you know, that's actually a market that is already really well served by these B2C products and companies like Squarespace and Wix. They, they do a great job, actually. And what we find is that, you know, once those small business owners, their business grows or, you know, we have, you know, larger companies that are looking to migrate off of, you know, a WordPress installation. That's, that's where we find really sticky users. That's where we find really happy and engaged users because Webflow can offer the level of customizability, scale, security, support that they're looking for. Let's get back to the engineering side of things. We've talked a little bit about the data flow between the front end and the back end. Tell me about your database infrastructure and your server infrastructure. Yeah, totally. It's pretty simple. So I'll start with a fun fact. Webflow has never gone down for scheduled maintenance ever in six and a half years of, of production. And the reason is because we've never needed to change the schema in our Mongo collections. Like we've either just added new collections or we've run migrations to clean some stuff up or to move some data from one place to another, but those could always be live. And I think, you know, there's this conception of NoSQL and in MongoDB that is valid. Right, the fact that it's not fully ACID compliant, the fact that until recently didn't it didn't support transactions, those were all drawbacks that we understood. But we just knew that our particular data model was a really good fit for MongoDB. That doesn't mean that we don't have transactions. We actually have to be a bit careful in the sense that we have to write a lot of the, the things that give you transaction outcomes into the application code. So we have a lot of more complex than needed probably code to mimic what a database transaction could give you. But hopefully, you know, with Mongo. What does that mean? So for example, if you're checking out on e-commerce, okay. right, and you've got a product and that product's in a cart, right? And you have limited inventory. And if someone else comes to your website and tries to add that product, that means you know you're going to get into a scenario where two people are trying to buy you know one product, but there's only one. So we have to be able to like support you know a checkout that supports transactions so that two people don't 
purchase the same product when there's only one. So that's that's one example of transactions. There's a lot of other examples of transactions that we need for billing. There's examples for you know other things like publishing, like when, whenever there's like some type of need for concurrency or whenever we need to implement a concept around a deadlock, that's when things get a little bit iffy in Mongo because you know you're not able to you know create those type of constructs in Mongo or at least in Mongo 3.0. So that's the database. We use Redis for a lot of temporary storage type of things. We actually don't do a lot of caching of our data model because as we talked about, there's like really large, you know, JSON blobs that we're throwing back and forth. And you're not putting those in Redis at all? No, that never touches Redis. So, you know, we, we do the things that you should put into Redis. So like things that can expire stuff such as like for forgot password tokens, right. Or temporary flags that you set on a user or a team plan or something like Mm -hmm. that. So we also actually, we did use Redis as well for our SSL termination stack. And this is probably a pretty interesting topic. So Nathan, one of our senior engineers in his white space time, like three or four years ago, he was like, Hey, like Webflow should support SSL. And this is around the time Let's Encrypt came out. So I think over like a weekend or something, he put together this whole SSL provisioning, SSL storage, a cert- certification storage, and integrated it into our, our web server. And we're using a version of Nginx called OpenResty. And it's built by the people over at Cloudflare. Cloudflare uses it to power, you know, I don't know exactly, but probably a lot of their stuff. And LinkedIn uses it too. Yeah, yeah. So it's a fantastic product. For those that don't know, it's essentially a Lua scripting layer that has been built into Nginx. And, you know, Nginx is known to be probably one of the best, you know, web servers out there. I don't even know what I would pick in the future, aside from Nginx, if I were to build a new product. Envoy? Is that the Go one? Which what's Envoy is widely used as a proxy, but I think it can be it can be used as a web server. I'm not entirely sure about that, but yeah, there's a lot out there. I know Go's got got some that really rival Nginx in terms of the performance, but I think we're we've been really really happy with OpenResty. The level of customizability, the way you can hook into the entire HTTP request lifecycle. That's how we were able to build SSL termination layer that supports I think 150,000 unique certificates right now. Mm which is pretty awesome. So so that part of the stack, we're using OpenResty, we're using DynamoDB, and then we're using global replication of DynamoDB tables to distribute all the SSL certs that we provision, store, and serve on behalf of our customers. Mm-hmm. So we actually have one master DynamoDB table that stores all of the certificates, and then we, there's actually a Lambda job to actually replicate that certificate across multiple regions around the world. So that when you request a Webflow site, let's say in Australia, uh-huh. you're gonna get served a Webflow site from Australia. If you request a Webflow site from Hungary, wow. you're gonna get served a Webflow site that is like that SSL connection is going to be terminated in in Frankfurt. So literally when you're hosting with Webflow, you have the option to do global, like like very distributed, extremely resilient website that, you know, unless you were using, I don't know, Cloudflare or something, you're not going to get anywhere else. So if I understand correctly, 
the infrastructure there that you just described is the fact that if I wanted an SSL or a secure, this is like HTTPS, right? Like this is, if I want an HTTPS, if I want fully encrypted traffic both ways between myself and the Webflow site that I'm accessing, you need to have global distribution of the SSL cert infrastructure. And in order to propagate that across the world, you have to have global replication of the certificate data infrastructure. And so so you have a, a Lambda that's listening every time, what is it, every time the certificate is up? Every single time a DynamoDB table gets added to, modified, or deleted, uh-huh. there's a Lambda job that listens on lifecycle events to that DynamoDB table to essentially perform that particular rep action across the other regions that SSL terminate in those regions DynamoDB tables. So it's a, essentially a primary, secondary type of you know setup. But you know, AWS has you know a good amount of hooks that make that possible. Right. So you're all in on AWS. Pretty much. We use Fastly for some stuff, but all of our compute is on AWS and then S3 for storage. So And you are not doing anything with containers, right? You're just on VMs? No, we we are a hundred percent on Kube. Um oh, okay. we're using EKS, we're using Terraform. So we have infrastructure as code for like 90% of our infrastructure. Yeah, I really credit the team for pushing for that. We had several really influential engineers on the team that really pushed for that. Like Chris Snelly, he's no longer with us, but also Nathan on the team. Like these were engineers that saw the value early on for automating a lot of the infrastructure and and then building it. Like we actually just started with Chef and Chef was great, but at a certain point of, you know, either the learning curve and also just kind of how weird, you know, Chef is sometimes and, and Knife. And I remember all these other tools in, from the early days, like it, it was, it did the job, but you know, it was pretty clear that the future was going to move to containers. So not, not just our web app, not just our web hosting, but also our, all of our CI is on top of Kube as well. And they're set up on horizontal pod autoscalers so that, you know, we essentially only run, you know, one CI machine when it's the middle of the night. So we can scale really quickly our CI stack from one all the way up to, I think, 250 nodes to, to support our CI needs. What do you need Terraform for? So Terraform's for a lot of like the configuration and topology of our infrastructure. So we have you know things like S3 buckets that we describe in Terraform. We have VPC connections that we describe in Terraform. Uh, we have a lot of different compute resources. So essentially, like when I say topology, it's like you can literally understand the entire Webflow infrastructure just by reading a Terraform config files. So you can understand how request flows more or less. You can understand how our Kubernetes settings are. You can understand the different firewall rules that we have. And all of that is just makes our lives super simple. So let's say, for example, we wanted to set up a brand new SSL termination region in New Zealand or Brazil. We essentially take the configs for 
let's say EU West or US West, and then we just change change some variables to support Oceana, and boom, like you run Terraform apply, and you have a running SSL uh, termination region in Oceana, which is not something that DevOps could do very easily before Terraform. The AWS pure equivalent is CloudFormation. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. There's also like Beanstalk and then, okay. yeah. Do you have any idea what the qualitative difference? CloudFormation, I believe, is JSON. Maybe they have a YAML version, but in typical like AWS fashion, I don't know if you've like tried to like modify a, an ARN like a ARN, like a AWS resource name, like those things are super obtuse. So like there's, there's some things about like the AWS stack that are kind of weird and not very dev friendly that maybe just turned us off. So, and then also we didn't want to be super locked into AWS as well. Like, so our Terraform configs can easily go to GCP if we need to. Really? So you don't feel like that ship has sailed in terms of being locked into AWS? I mean, you got lambdas and... DynamoDB. I guess yeah. it's all backend infrastructure. That stuff doesn't sound that tough yeah, to they're, migrate. Yeah, they're pretty swappable if you think about it. I mean, cloud functions, I mean, there's a war going on and the arms race of cloud is still alive and well. So I think it's a good thing if you're a engineer in this day and age, given that you have you know these massive companies that are competing for your business, it's going to come down to what you're familiar with and then also ease of use honestly i actually think ease of use in like the devops and developer community is not something that companies really think about when they're approaching developer focused products i think a lot of cloud products or dev products out there think that because like their user base is technical and that they're engineers that you know they won't necessarily value ease of use. And ease of use could come in so many different ways, right? It could be like a, a really nicely buttoned up CLI package. It could be docs. It could be, you know, just like simple things like what you name your variables or like how, you know, like whether you choose YAML versus JSON. So like so, some things like that, I think, you know, are quite subjective, but and I also understand it's really hard, right? Because AWS has to pander to enterprise accounts with a specific profile of an engineer, probably not the engineers that are listening on this like podcast that might be more startup-y or you know, scrappy or, or modern. You know, there's there's honestly engineers out there that are still writing a lot of J2EE applications and like Java is still super popular, you know, C sharp.net stack is super, super popular. So like, you know, it's a really hard thing to do, right? If you're a cloud provider to make sure that, you know, your products can satisfy all engineers and all, all developers. Yeah. When I think about ease of use of AWS versus Google, like the AWS ease of use flavor is everything is there everything you will ever want is in the gigantic buffet of aws services it may not be great but we've got chicken wings we've got pizza we've got cheesecake we've got everything the you classic want classic example of this is mongo and aws's version of mongo like when aws launched their version of mongo db document db yeah yeah like i i thought mongo db was gonna die 
like as a company because it's like oh yeah like all like mongo like atlas cloud like why would people use atlas cloud versus you know document db so it's just like all these things what do y'all use we're, we're moving to Atlas. We're using a hosted Mongo provider called MLab. Oh, yeah. Love MLab. Oh, yeah? Oh, awesome. Yeah. Huge user of MLab. Yeah, yeah. MLab is great. Will and is... Acquired. Acquired by Mongo. Yeah, that's right. Will's great. Uh, Angela is great over there. They've been great They got that product Mongo. so dialed in. The UI looks so, like, it looks like it's from the 1980s. <laughs> nobody cares. It's because the product quality is so good. And people and the also, integration with Heroku is so good. Right, right. And also underestimating support as well. Because right. I remember when we're going through crazy scaling issues at, at Vungle and we just started emailing them and I remember Angela was like, all right, well, I highly discourage you to think about sharding before you do this. Have you checked your connection pool sizes? I think you guys just need to up your compute instance. And we just like followed her and essentially they, you know, helped us scale. And that's why, you know, chose them again when we're building on top, uh, building Webflow. So great, great people over there. I hope now that they've been acquired that they're able to transfer some of that like, hey, we're not like a vendor, we're your partner mentality over to to Atlas. Well, the Atlas, in full disclosure, MongoDB's a sponsor, so it's a little bit pitchy, but speaking objectively, if I was a company that actually had the scale that needed like a MongoDB provider other than MLab, the idea, the whole Atlas stitch stack sounds pretty pretty useful. It sounds like what you would want out of a MongoDB provider. It also sounds non-trivial to build. So like document DB being the nail in the, in the MongoDB coffin, it's like not so fast. There's yeah. probably like five people at AWS working so, on yeah, that product. Yeah, yeah. Probably 500, but probably yeah. 500. yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I have a tremendous amount of respect actually for Elliot, CTO over at Mongo. Sure, and like yeah. he's taken a very similar approach to, to the way I suppose I've built my products at my companies in the sense that he just focused on what the users really, really wanted. For example, like when Mongo 1.0 or 1.6 or 1.8 came out, you know, it had tons of issues, right? But, you know, Mongo as a concept, as a NoSQL you know, provider, it just did one thing really, really well, which is like the developer experience. And then also piggybacking on the rise of Node.js and like how seamless it was to have like a backend Node framework work so, so easily with your database provider. That's what I mean by ease of use and developer experience. That's, that's when we're going to, when I look into... I don't know, my really dirty crystal ball into 2020. <laughs> like, I really hope there's companies out there that are really thinking long and hard about the developer experience as we are about the visual developer experience. And they're thinking through like, okay, like this is the way things work today, but this is how it could work tomorrow. So there's like things out there like dark laying. I don't know if you've heard oh, yeah. of it. Right? Oh, we did show on that. Yeah. So like, you know, there's really exciting things out there. I think it's going to be tough because if I was dark laying, like they're on such an extreme side of the spectrum where they're <laughs> trying to do everything. I think there's going to be a level of org organ rejection that they might run into where like from an adoption standpoint, it's like, like, you're trying to convince a developer to change everything. Yeah. And that's gonna be really hard. 
right? So I really admire the mission that they're on. I think Paul is an incredible technical mind and I think he'll figure it out, but I'm rooting for them. But I, I just think from like a go-to-market or go-to-customer standpoint, I don't know, there's, there's some more thought there. Being on call is hard, but having the right tools for the job can make it easier. When you wake up in the middle of the night to troubleshoot the database, you should be able to have the database monitoring information right in front of you. When you're out to dinner and your phone buzzes because your entire application is down, you should be able to easily find out who pushed code most recently so that you can contact them and find out how to troubleshoot the issue. VictorOps is a collaborative incident response tool. VictorOps brings your monitoring data and your collaboration tools into one place so that you can fix issues more quickly and reduce the pain of on-call. Go to victorops.com sedaily and get a free t-shirt when you try out VictorOps. And it's not just any t-shirt. It's an on-call shirt. When you're on call, your tools should make the experience as good as possible. And these tools include a comfortable t-shirt. If you visit victorops.com slash sedaily and try out VictorOps, you can get that comfortable t-shirt. VictorOps integrates with all of your services. Slack, Splunk, CloudWatch, Datadog, New Relic. And over time, VictorOps improves and delivers more value to you through machine learning. If you want to hear about how VictorOps works, you can listen to our episode with Chris Riley. VictorOps is a collaborative incident response tool, and you can learn more about it as well as get a free t-shirt when you check it out at victorops.com sedaily. Thanks for listening, and thanks to VictorOps for being a sponsor. Not to get off topic, but the interview I did with Paul, we got into a little bit of a debate because he's pretty critical of AWS. Like he's got a lot of bones to pick with AWS. He's very much in favor of the the license changes. And whereas I'm just kind of like, look, AWS, they have shipped like a cheap version of Mongo, a cheap version of Elasticsearch, a cheap version of Redis. I'm sure it's good enough in many cases and it's it's getting better all the time. But if you are one of these providers, Redis, Kafka, Elastic, whatever, you should be able to build a defensible business aside from, you know, you shouldn't have to do licensing changes. Now that's my armchair quarterback opinion. I don't see the numbers in the business and in, in, in these different businesses. And, and certainly these open source providers have all said that AWS really is eating away at their business just because of the defaults. You know, like if you're already all in on AWS and you can go with Elastic Cash, why on earth would you go with Redis Labs? Why would you go out to Redis Labs? Well, the answer is like, in many cases, you need more support, you need more granular, whatever, this and that. So I, I don't know, like I'm not making these actual decisions, so I'm not in charge of like vetting one versus the other. But in any case, from my pontification chair, I got into a debate with Paul because he was more taking the ideological other side of it, of basically, look, these companies, they are built on open source projects that they led, they built all the value in, and Amazon just spun up some half-baked service and started capturing lots of value. That's not quote-unquote fair. 
I think there's an interesting way of looking at it, which is just to look at the Amazon retail side of the business. And there's a reason why it's called the everything store. AWS is essentially the everything store of cloud. <laughs> so, you know, I think for open source projects, for independent companies out there that are offering competing services to what AWS has or is going to have, take a look at, you know, all the other companies that have succeeded in retail, despite the fact that Amazon has dominated e-commerce. Oh, yeah. Right. So Dollar like, Shave Club Casper. That's right. Right. So it's like, so some of the things you just mentioned, like customer experience, customer support, like enhanced, like, you know, better versions of the product, like, like more well thought out. Sure. Those are things Amazon could copy, but they've managed to build a brand that is defensible in the age of Amazon that I think a lot of the technical companies and software companies out there can really, really think about. And I actually think that's a marketing problem. Actually, that's a go to market problem. So like for these companies, like Mongo and Elastic, how are you not going to just differentiate on your product level, but how are you going to differentiate on your brand? How are you going to differentiate on your customer experience, which includes your sales and support teams? That's how I would think about operating those businesses, which is like, Hey, this is not just a technical war because at the end of the day, you're selling to humans and they have the engineer or developer title, but you're still selling to a human. And just in the same way that like the everything store sells, you know, their own brands of diapers, diapers.com is still massive, right? Or like something like that. Right? If you put yourself in the shoes of those companies, the Kafka company, Confluent, Redis Labs, whatever. So I agree with you, but do you also say, well, why not change our license also? Like, why not add another layer of moat? Do you think the licensing is a viable strategy? I tend to think that legal avenues to create business distinction can only survive for so long because let's say for example you have you know the next like in 2020 i think the largest cloud provider will be based in asia right so in that world where the 10 cents are building a cloud provider yeah good luck with your license changes yeah yeah gg right like, <laughs> like so so like I, I would encourage, like, I would operate those businesses from, like, a very first principles approach of, hey, like, this is just what we have to do fundamentally. Sure, we can think about legal structures and licensing to protect us, but fundamentally, what we should be really thinking about is how do we attract the right talent so that we could build a world-class product that we can't necessarily give away in those open source channels. So, you know, there's there's a lot of you know, examples of this, right? Red Hat's done a good job of it. And there's there's a lot of different companies out there that have built defensible businesses, despite the fact that, you know, they're open source. Beautiful answer. Definitely agree with you. Getting back to the high level, your market, put back on your CMO hat, I suppose. You had this no code conference recently, and I'm sure that was an in-person manifestation of all the, these different personas that you've seen. Based off of the no-code conference and just all the work that you've been doing as CMO, do you have a perspective for how this no-code, low-code space is going to change over the next five years? I know that's a very broad question and i'm sure you get that question a lot and it's really boring in some ways but 
since you're so close to it, I would just love to hear if you've got anything, anything counterintuitive, hopefully. Yeah, it's really interesting because like there's there's the Twitterverse that has slowly started associating, you know, Webflow as like the leader of no code. And like maybe it's just confirmation bias or maybe it's just Twitter's algorithms working really well for me. But, (laughs) you know, there's a lot of people, you know, in Silicon Valley that have developed this this relationship or correlation between Webflow and no code. And there's obviously other companies as well that are in that conversation. So like to take a step back, I actually personally feel that no code is a movement slash like, like trend. And I don't mean trend in like a derogatory or like negative way, but I think it's a, it's a movement like mobile or smartphones. So like, I think it's actually internally, like I would, I would like to, you know, talk to other people about this as well, is just like, how do we think about no code from a category creation standpoint? And then how do we think about our place within the no code movement? And let me explain. So if you were to go back, right, and to 2006, before the iPhone was launched, and if you were Rim, the makers of BlackBerry, and you said like, we're the company behind mobile. Like looking back, like especially since Steve Jobs got on stage in 2007 and said like, you know, like we're coming out with the iPhone, like looking back, like I think that CMO would like feel kind of silly that they like associated their brand to like a trend, mm. which is like mobile mm. or smartphones, right? So that's why like, I think like internally, I would like to be careful about like what we're actually Ooh. like associating ourselves Ooh. to. And I think like I'm, somewhat contrarian here, but I think no code is a movement in the sense that you're going to see a lot of companies, products, and roles, and job titles to come out of this movement, just in the same way that mobile movement created a lot of job titles, like Android engineer, like, you know. Or Instacart shopper. Right. So I think like it's a it's a movement in the sense that we should start thinking about it as like, all right, like what are some of like the products, what are some of the roles, what are some of the job titles that could result from this movement? And we're happy to, you know, embrace no code. And I think like internally, we really want to think through like, all right, this thing's gonna evolve. This thing's gonna change. You know, no code only became really a thing in 2019, right? So let's see how this conversation starts to take shape in 2020 and we would love to help it take shape that's why we put on the no code conference so that we can create these like we can like actually invent the substrate of communication around what no code is going to be so i think like internally like we want to have no code be associated to the mission and vision of the company which is to be able to create empower people to create software visually and that there's going to be like variants and there's going to be like specific pockets of this no code conversation that we really, really care about. So those things are, hey, like Vlad talked about visual developers. We use the term visual developers internally. All right, there's going to be this new role of a visual developer in the no code age. Let's make Webflow the best possible product or go-to solution for this new role that we feel like is going to be prominent in the next decade. Like we feel, or I feel at least, that there's gonna be a blend of a technical person that is using 
no-code tools like Webflow, like Airtable, like Zapier, like Retool, et cetera, to be able to create the same kinds of web apps, the same kinds of websites, the same kinds of software experiences that you know traditional developers or, oh, I hate to use the word traditional, but like hand-coding developers would only be able to create. In, in the last decade. So, you know, I think about this as a very similar, but probably a bigger step function to what Heroku did or to what Rails did, right? So it's just like, you're starting to think about things in abstraction layers, right? Yeah. So it was like Rails, like really made web frameworks super easy, turnkey. And then Heroku even made that even easier. But then now you're starting to think about entering this next decade. What's like the better iteration or like the evolution of of Heroku. And in our opinion, something like Webflow, where you're going in and you need to understand the technical concepts of box model, CSS classes, cascading, the concepts of responsive web design, the concepts of this data modeling, for example, like you can build a data model from scratch in the CMS. And then those are like abstractions that people are going to use in the no-code age. It does make complete sense. Really well said, actually. What's impossible to build with Webflow today that you would like to make possible eventually? Well, some of the things that we're really interested in, because this is just like a product philosophy that we adopted from the early days, is, you know, the first four years of Webflow's product history was we really wanted to empower Sergi, our non-coding design co-founder, to be able to build just like dope website and you know with interactions with flexbox with grid like now someone like sergi who's not a traditional developer he's purely a designer and so like your brad adjunct yeah right like he's in this visual developer role and brad is playing the role of the visual developer now like he's able to build like bespoke professional websites that you know back like even you know the top front-end engineers would take a long time to be able to build. So using that particular product philosophy of picking like a persona, and in you know in the early days that was the non-coding designer, like Sergi, like ideally for me, like I wanna be able to see Webflow's product evolve to a point where I can use it to build a web app, a web dashboard, and actually even think about backend logic as well so that I can build, you know, on top of a framework that Webflow provides me so that I can get the same level of scalability as well as customizability without writing as much code. Mobile apps? No code. Mobile apps, yeah, for sure. I think like mobile apps, you know, are using a lot of the same layout technologies that the web has started to adopt like not like auto layout but essentially like uh, relative positioning and things like that and like there's things like flexbox that make it really easy for us to start thinking about mobile app layouts so we're, we're talking a lot about that and we also want to make sure we're 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 making sound business decisions as well and mobile apps you know is is a small fraction actually mm. of of websites mm. And like the impact that we could have by focusing on websites and totally. web, web apps in the near future is is going to be much larger. Totally. What would you be building if you were not building Webflow today, you specifically? Given the fact that I spend 
pretty much every waking moment thinking about Webflow. <laughs> that will be a tough one to answer. But things that excite me, let's just maybe reframe that a little bit. It's going to be a non-answer. But from a tech product standpoint, I think I get really excited by how quickly the data processing space has changed. So like I'm talking about Spark, I'm talking about, you know, like the modern variants of Hadoop. And I now run our, our data teams as well. And I'm, I'm just looking at, you know, technologies like Snowflake, which is a data warehouse, looking at Stitch, which is like a, like a ETL like tool that's amazing. And I'm just trying to think through like what that could look like in the future where you can not employ a data engineer, <laughs> not necessarily have like super strong data science background, but you can use like tooling to be able to A, organize your data sets, and then B, able to derive business insights from data. So I could think of like a lot of different sort of use cases for this space where reasons why this could be really interesting, which is, you know, if you are a business analyst, if you are a product manager inside of a company, and there's just simply like data that is immature, it takes a lot of effort to take immature data and get it represented in a data warehouse so that you can you know, build the right dashboards on top of it, et cetera. It requires tremendous expertise to be able to do it well. So I think there could be very interesting ways for a product or a company to, to address that problem. And like I, love big data. I love thinking about architecture. So I think I'd be well suited to, to think about that particular space. Yeah. Self-serve data. It's not here. Still need the data engineer, data scientist. Yeah. Still need everybody stitching things together. Yeah. Brian, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. When I'm building a new product, G2i is the company that I call on to help me find a developer who can build the first version of my product. G2i is a hiring platform run by engineers that matches you with React, React Native, GraphQL, and mobile engineers who you can trust. Whether you are a new company building your first product, like me, or an established company that wants additional engineering help, G2i has the talent that you need to accomplish your goals. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2i to learn more about what G2i has to offer. We've also done several shows with the people who run G2i, Gabe Greenberg and the rest of his team. These are engineers who know about the React ecosystem, about the mobile ecosystem, about GraphQL, React Native... They know their stuff, and they run a great organization. In my personal experience, G2i has linked me up with experienced engineers that can fit my budget, and the G2i staff are friendly and easy to work with. They know how product development works. They can help you find the perfect engineer for your stack, and you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com G2i to learn more about G2i. Thank you to G2i for being a great supporter of Software Engineering Daily, both as listeners and also as people who have contributed code that have helped me out in my projects. 
So if you want to get some additional help for your engineering projects, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2I. 